Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Well, for months, for years, really, uh, we have been hearing about Hamilton's bid for the 100th anniversary of the British Empire Games, the 100th of the Commonwealth Games in 2030. Earlier today, uh, it seems the news has arrived that this bid has reached the end of the road. Uh, PJ Mercanti is president of the Hamilton 100 Committee. He joins me now. PJ, thanks for this today. No problem. Thank you, Scott. So uh, is this, as I understand it then, that today is where this bid essentially dies? So at least for now, yes, this bid uh, will, the bid team will cease operations with regards to the pursuit for the 2030 games. We received word from the um, Commonwealth Sport Canada organization that unfortunately, without a commitment from the government of Ontario uh, and and certain uh, conditions that they had uh, requested by February 13th, that Hamilton 2030 will no longer be Canada's preferred candidate for the 2030 Games. Uh, And so CSC, Commonwealth Sport Canada, is exploring options uh, for other potential uh, bids. Uh, Numerous communities have reached out to them uh, in the event uh, we weren't able to to mobilize the, uh, the provincial support. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate uh, and, and certainly disappointing. Uh, however, you know, there have been a lot of benefits that have come out of this effort. And, and this will be a springboard for the community in many ways that we're certainly proud of and proud of the work that we've, that we've achieved. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly uh, disappointed with, uh, with this news that was recently shared. Are you entirely surprised? Because I, I would think that as someone who would have been as involved as you were, you probably had some hints leading up to the last little while that this was not moving towards a resolution. I mean, is this kind of what you expected was going to happen? Uh, no, we, we've we had over the course of the last six months uh, a lot of engagement with the federal government, provincial government, with, uh, with uh, local governments, uh, municipalities, and Indigenous communities. And we've been working hard towards uh, collaboration amongst the various uh, government stakeholders in finalizing you know, elements of a bid. And, and there's been many, uh, many Zoom meetings with, uh, with uh, members of the Ministry of Sport, the Provincial Ministry of Sports, and, and ultimately they don't hold all the cards, obviously, but they're, they're political... Um, you know, MPPs and, and ministers uh, are the ones that need to provide staff direction to continue to move forward. So we've been having great correspondence and, and dialogue with uh, the province over the last many, many months. So, so this uh, news was certainly uh, disappointing. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're hopeful that a good outcome will still come for Canada. Uh, and, uh, and we're confident that we'll be able to pivot our efforts strategically uh, amongst our other stakeholders and partners of the bid team. Obviously, institutions like McMaster University, Mohawk College, uh, the Six Nations of the Grand River, uh, and and others like them have been at the table at this for many years. Uh, Lou Fraporti, who's been our chair with Gowling, Cecilia Carter-Smith, and Greg Maycheck. Uh, you know, we've been at this for a while, so this was certainly disappointing uh, news, um, but we're we're hopeful for the future. You mentioned a few minutes ago that there are still benefits that have come from this for the community. Like what? 
So one of the biggest, I think, legacies that has come out of the bid effort has been the uh, connections, collaborations, alignment with so many constituencies and stakeholders in the community. I mean, I've been, uh, my family uh, business has been a part of this community for, for decades. And I would say that this bid effort was the first time that I've experienced having sports organizations, educational institutions, not-for-profit organizations, private sector leaders, the Indigenous uh, partners, uh, all at the table talking about the future of Hamilton and a greater Hamilton and initiatives, uh, social impact initiatives, uh, you know, uh, economic investment initiatives uh, that could benefit, uh, you know, all of Hamilton. And so I think the fact that we've been able to have that positive dialogue and communication, uh, it has, it's brought our organizations closer. And, and, you know, there's nothing more powerful, I think, in bringing people together than sport. And so we were hoping to use this platform as an opportunity to, to lift the city up. But I think the connections that have been established already through this bid effort will be a legacy that will propel the city forward. You're not a minder. You do a lot of things. I don't think telling the future or reading the future is one of your gifts, but we have now tried as a city to get the 2010 Commonwealth Games. We lost that to New Delhi. We've been pushing for the 2030 on the 100th anniversary of the Games. This has not happened. Best guess, is there a time coming down the road when Hamilton will push and get a Commonwealth Games? Or do you look at this and say, you know, this was really probably our best chance with the anniversary and everything else. This is probably the last one. You know what? Any anything's possible, and and I'm an eternal optimist, so I obviously am always hopeful for you know things happening for a reason, and that there's there's a greater purpose to all of it. And so I'm 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 certainly you know not going to to give up on the possibility or the dream that one day this may happen. And it's not unlike uh, you know Greece with the uh, Olympics, the hundredth anniversary. Unfortunately, they weren't able to mobilize uh, the hosting of the of the hundredth anniversary. But they they did receive it eight years after that, uh, ironically enough. So you never say never. I think is 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 an important uh, message, uh, and and we're obviously going to you know be open minded in the event that um, that the province uh, reconsiders or other circumstances warrant. We'll remain open to reviving the efforts, but you know for now uh, we're obviously um, uh, you know sharing that uh, that's we're going to cease operations do, do you think and i mean certainly as you've described these sports organizations were on board with this and there were some groups that were on board and through the community do you think the public was on board with the idea of the commonwealth games or was this a bit of a was that one area where there was a bit of a gap in order to get the excitement oh. with the public Oh, no, no, no. The the excitement with the public was tremendous. We had thousands of volunteers from all corners of this community and other communities. Uh, we signed, we had over the course of January, we had eight uh, municipal leaders, mayors, and two uh, First Nations uh, chiefs uh, send a letter to the Premier uh, of Ontario requesting uh, that, that he strongly consider this bid. We had uh, a dozen chambers of commerce uh, leaders uh, also share uh, share a joint letter expressing their enthusiasm for the bid. We had, I believe, 15 or 16 uh, provincial sports organizations uh, send a letter. Uh, so, so the support was tremendous uh, amongst, you know, the business community, 
the the not-for-profit community, municipal leaders, uh, and um, and and in, you know First Nations leaders. So this was was unprecedented to have this degree of collaboration among so many stakeholders. And you know we we were proud of that connection. Uh, this would have been the first time that lacrosse would have been a medaled event in the Commonwealth Games and would have been held on First Nations ground. So we had some really uh, innovative and pioneering uh, elements of the bid that, and, and the, the support uh, from so many in the community, from the educational partners uh, and, and other not-for-profit organizations was, was unprecedented. The YMCA uh, was aligned, the YWCA was aligned. And so I think that our bid, I think one of the strengths of our bid was the community alignments towards this effort. Just before I let you go, um, because the one question, of course, this probably should have been the first thing I asked, but because the provincial government seemed to be not on board with this, one would assume that that means the finances were an issue because if there was no finances, they probably would be fine with it. Do we know at this point what the ask was going to be to the province? Well, it was there, there's a formula for it. And, and you know, the, the, the funding model would have been been shared. Uh, effectively, uh, you know, the, the, the government of Ontario would have, uh, you know, been at the table for 35 to 40%, as would the government of Canada. Uh, and the games themselves generate substantial revenue. 20% of the, of the funding model would have come from games revenue. Uh, and, and the balance that would have been responsible by municipalities and uh, institutions like McMaster and the various uh, municipalities across the, the province uh, and the private sector would have made up the difference. And so the, the ask was modest relative to historic games, including the Pan Am games. Our ask would have been less than half of what Pan Am would Which have would cost. be what? Which would be so, what, roughly? So it would be in the in the $350 million range. However, the ROI for the province would have been exceeding that. It would have been a $1.2 billion economic impact. So the province would have had a three to one ROI on their investment. 16,000 jobs would have been created. 400 million uh, in local contracts would have been a part of this. So the economic spinoff, and, and, and this wasn't, this, this came from PricewaterhouseCoopers, who did an independent economic analysis of the games, showed that there would be uh, 300 million worth of new tax revenue for the province as well. So there were tremendous ways in which the province would have generated a return on investment uh, and a substantial ROI, which was substantiated by PwC. And so, you know, so it would have been it would have been tremendous in the form of the ROI, the job creation, the investment, the new tax revenue, procurement for local businesses uh, to the tune of 400 million. So, you know, it's it's uh, we're still, you know, confident that the that the bid, the strength of the bid, you know, in terms of its social impact legacy its economic uplift. There was something special about our bid uh, and, and still remains something special. And so, you know, we're, we're proud of the work that we've done and we wish the best of luck to whoever else uh, is able to pull it off and we'll collaborate yeah. with, with Whenever them. that we'll happens. collaborate with them. Absolutely. PJ, we got to run, unfortunately. Listen, really appreciate you taking some time. I know it's a tough day for you with all the work you put in, but really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Well, Thank you. Th- Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
I don't know how your day's been today. Valentine's Day. Hopefully it's been great and fantastic and full of love and all the rest. Well, here I am now for some of you to ruin your day because there is new science out. There is a new study out that says for some of you, at least, coffee may be not good for you. Those of you who are drinking your coffee every day, some of you, this may apparently be a bad thing. Uh, here to help explain this, let me bring in Dr. Sara Madavi uh, from the University of Toronto, who was the author of the study. She joins me now. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this, we were just talking before you came on, and I was saying how this is one of those studies. There's lots of studies that you know are interesting, but don't really resonate with people. You talk about coffee, you're hitting almost everybody, aren't you? <laughs> uh, it, it is a beloved uh, beverage for sure. And you were saying that, that I didn't even realize this. It's this, what is it? The second most traded commodity in the world? Yeah. Uh, and I hope I'm, I'm, this is my pre COVID, um, you know, statistics here uh, <laughs> talking, but uh, I, I, you know, after COVID everything changed and I don't know if this did or not, maybe it became the first commodity, uh, you know, <laughs> at some point where, where oil prices were um, so low that we couldn't believe, but uh, ultimately, yeah. So uh, coffee is the second uh, most commonly traded commodity worldwide, uh, only second to oil. Which so. speaks to how popular, beloved, addictive, whatever word you want to use is for this. So when you do a study then that looks into coffee and you find out that for some people, and again, not, not for all people, but for some people, this could be problematic. Why? Yeah. And I mean, um, look, for me, um, I, I guess it depends on your personality. You can look at the glass half full or half empty. But ultimately, um, looking at coffee in this way can can really motivate us. And I love uh, doing the kind of research that can really motivate people. Um, we're not saying coffee is bad. We're not saying it's bad for everybody. We're just saying the likelihood that the caffeine in the coffee is probably not everybody's best friend um, is a good reason to look into uh, perhaps switching to decaf or limiting some of that coffee. That okay. So it's the caffeine, but why would, where would the caffeine become a problem? What, what would be wrong for some people? Why would caffeine be a problem? Um, well, uh, the caffeine uh, is metabolized through our liver and detoxified. And so that's a really good term to think about. So when something is detoxified, it means that it has uh, probably, um, you know, it, it has certain uh, properties in our in our body that can be damning. Um, in specifically relation to kidneys, uh, we've seen in animal studies, uh, cross sections of nephrons, which are the smallest units of kidneys um, in a functioning way that we can look at them, who have been fed uh, caffeine versus placebo. So these are interventional trials. Um, those um, animals that are fed the uh, caffeine as a part of their diet, but nothing else is different. When you look at the cross section of their nephrons, there is actual scarring um, and damage to the kidneys directly. Um, so we know that this uh, caffeine can actually be harmful to our to our bodies. Um, now, but the question comes, you know, of, of course, our bodies are incredible, we are exposed to all kinds of potential toxins. I mean, water can be toxic if you drink too mm. much of it. So here we're looking at the amount um, and the capacity for our body to be able to clear it out. Even those who are slow metabolizers can still handle a certain amount of caffeine 
without potential harm. I was going to say, so like, it's not a case where in some cases, one cup of coffee a day is necessarily at a point, even for slow metabolizers going to hurt them. But there's a lot of people, doctor, who one cup of coffee is, is not, is not the reality. It's five or six or seven, which if you're one of those people, that would seem to be where you start to build up a, a critical mass, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really um, two things. The size matters here and the amount matters. So so the frequency and the size, right? Uh, you, you, you hit the nail right on the head. You got so it. how do you know? Are there symptoms that if you were someone who was falling into this category, would there be things that you would be able to identify that are going wrong or that you're feeling or experiencing that would tell you maybe you want to check this? Uh, that's an excellent question. And I can use myself because I've obviously uh, gotten genetically tested and I know, um, you know, what kind of a um, genotype I have. So the experience, the neurological cognitive experience of coffee or caffeine, I should say, that everybody um, feels is a different genotype. Uh, there are more people who are more sensitive to caffeine uh, and there are those who they need to drink a lot more coffee to get that same feeling, that same so-called buzz or concentration or, um, you know, uh, feeling of uh, excitement. For other people, smaller amounts can make them feel really anxious. That um, genotype is in our nervous system, particularly in our brain. Um, and um, I can use my example, I am a, a caffeine sensitive person. What we are studying here and what we really look at uh, in our uh, in our findings is the genotype that is in our liver and it cleans and clears caffeine at a certain rate from our body. There is no way for us to know if we're slower fast metabolizers based on the gene in our liver because there's no way to feel or experience that detoxification. Now, in my case, I'm lucky. So I have the marker in my brain uh, that can signal me if I drink two cups of coffee, I start to get jittery. But in my liver, I'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine. So even if I have three cups of coffee, I'm not going to get those harmful effects in my kidneys or in my heart or blood pressure. Uh, but neurologically, I'm very sensitive to it. My so, best friend is the opposite. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. But, is the, but the tricky part here would then be that you could potentially, if I'm understanding you right, you could potentially be damaging yourself with no way to know that you're damaging yourself. Exactly. Exactly. You put it right. Um, and, and that's exactly what it is. So because those two genotypes are very different and not really related with each other, uh, there is no way to quote unquote feel um, this, this damage, which, which is unfortunate because, you know, there's no natural feedback. So genetic testing really is the true way to find out uh, the difference. And I got to believe that there's not a ton of people who are going to go to the effort of getting genetic testing just so they can keep drinking a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, but it all depends how um, two things are to you. Like some people don't want to get tested because they just don't want to know. Uh, but other people could be really motivated by this information. And there is research to show that um, many people can actually uh, want to get genetically tested just so they know that have, they have the confidence that they're making the right choice. Um, and like I said, it's not, we're not saying don't drink coffee or take it away. It's just that if you are, um, you know, in the group that consumes a lot of it, you just may want to think about it. And of course, coffee is just one aspect in uh, overall health and many other 
things that we do to stay healthy. The one other thing, and we got to run, the one other thing that I would wonder then is if you are someone, and thankfully it's not many people, it's a small percentage, but if you have kidney problems, would this be one of the first things you would test then? Stop drinking coffee and see if it changes anything? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I can't comment on that too much because that's not what we looked at in our study. So our study was uh, conducted in fairly um, healthy young people. So average age was, you know, in their early 30s. Mm. Um, and we were looking at people who, for the most part, didn't have any pre-existing uh, kidney conditions and um, developed it over the 16-year period that we, we kind of watched them. Uh, and the marker we looked at actually increased, uh, quote-unquote, kidney function, meaning that increased the rate of filtration. If you have kidney disease and you go to your doctor, they look at your um, declining over time kidney function. So in fact, drinking coffee can give the false uh, outcome potentially that your kidneys are functioning better than they are because it's forcing them, stressing them to filter out more. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that kind of a force um, can can potentially one can conclude or assume will accelerate um, kidney function, mm. uh, dysfunction, I should say. And if you have kidney disease, certainly wouldn't be helpful. So the moral of the story, I guess, is uh, skip coffee and just drink wine and uh, you'll be 100% <laughs> hell. I, I don't know if that's the moral of the story. That's my moral of the story here. Probably um, not. But listen, decaf is there. I've been saying decaf it. Decaf is there. Right. Okay. That's, you know, you we, know what? And, and, that's okay. That's a, that's a safe backup option. Uh, Dr. Sarah Madavi, I wish we had a lot more time. It's a great, interesting study. Uh, people can find it online. They can uh, look at this up from University of Toronto. It is, it's worth a read. It's really, really interesting. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you for your time. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.